This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Previously on Colors. I'm a black woman living in the DMV. And nine years ago, I got remarried to a white man from central Pennsylvania. Her name is Robin. And what she says next is stunning. My husband loves me for sure. But I realized that he is a racist. We've had a few controversial podcasts but this one is unrivaled. I knew he was conservative when we began dating. I am a Democrat. We debated a lot of the issues from time to time. However, in 2016, when he began favoring Donald Trump, things began to become very uncomfortable. So just how uncomfortable did things get? To put it bluntly, there were four years of hell in our home. Coming up in this episode of Colors. The United Nations, like the whole world, was uh, really moved and taken back by the killing, the murder of George Floyd. Mona Rishmawi is the chief of the Rule of Law, Equality and Non-Discrimination Branch in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the United Nations. For the people of African descent, their daily experience is an experience of discrimination, is an experience of uh, often dehumanization and an experience of uh, people who, when they come in contact with the system, with the official structures and systems, they are not treated well. So what is the United Nations going to do about that? And will it make a difference? That's coming up in this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. My name is Adam Carter. I am white. My name is Sue Ann Lee, and I'm Korean American. My name is Aya Sadik. I am Middle Eastern. I'm Palestinian. And I'm JJ Green. And I'm black. And this is Colors. Back on June 28th, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights at the UN released the High Commissioner's report on racial justice and equality. This came after an urgent debate on currently racially inspired human rights violations, systemic racism, police brutality, and violence against peaceful protest. As a result, the report produced a four-point agenda designed to end systemic racism and human rights violations, elements that were mentioned, and they came up with these things. One, step up, stop denying, and start dismantling. Two, pursue justice and impunity and build trust. Listen up. People of African descent must be heard and redress, confront past legacies, and take special measures to deliver reparatory justice. Joining us on this program to discuss all of this is Mona Rishmawi. She's the chief of the Rule of Law, Equality, and Non-Discrimination Branch 
in the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Good morning. How are you today? Very well. Thank you so much. On this podcast, we talk about race in the United States, and this is, as part of the United Nations, is a global initiative, but it includes the United States as well. And a part of what you're doing is dealing with racially inspired human rights violations, systemic racial uh, systemic racism, police brutality, and violence against peaceful protests. So I'd first like to ask you if you would just put into a context for us the objective of this investigation and this report. Thank you very much for asking. Um, what happened is that, of course, the United Nations, like the whole world, was uh, really moved and taken back by the killing the murder of George Floyd. Uh, the UN Human Rights Council was meeting at the time, so they met in a special, what they call a special debate, at the request of the uh, group of African ambassadors, or the African group, as we call it in the United Nations term. And it was just immediately after the, uh, the killing, and uh, they really wanted to understand and find a way to deal with this issue you want once and for all. And a number of people addressed that gathering, including the brother of George Floyd, uh, very prominent uh, members of uh, the United Nations, and spoke about their own experience and the experience of their own family. So the Human Rights Council decided at the time, this was about a year ago, June 2020, they decided ask the High Commissioner to look at this issue in a comprehensive way and present a comprehensive report to the Human Rights Council about what is going on with regard to systemic racism in the world, uh, violations by particular killings by law enforcement officials uh, against people or violations against uh, people of African descent and also Africans as well as the situation of victims and for the purpose of accountability and redress for victims. So that was the background. So uh-huh. we, sorry? Go ahead, please. Yeah, so we embarked, so the High Commissioner took this, our High Commissioner, who's the former president of Chile, Madame Michelle Bachelet, took it extremely seriously and really instructed us and asked us to look at this issue in a very, very deep way. So we started, a, if you want, a conversation and consultations with people. Uh, so we spoke about three to three, four, three, four hundred people from all over the countries, academics, uh, experts, um, um, members of uh, the United Nations, meaning uh, experts in the United Nations, but most importantly, people of African descent themselves, and families of victims, mm-hmm. people of African descent. So we embarked on a global conversation. We also asked states, we asked states for their opinion. So states made submission to us. And the, and the result of this whole process is the report that Madame Bachelet uh, launched um, uh, last, we launched last, uh, last uh, month, and Madame Bachelet presented to the Human Rights Council last week. All right. So let me first, as an African-American, say thank you for doing this, for 
taking this uh, seriously. Um, this is um, something that I have dedicated a good portion of my career to, uh, and certainly being in the national security field, have covered the, the United Nations for a very long time, and I understand the importance of the work you do, but for what you're doing on this particular issue, I say a special thank you to you. First question, first question I'd like to ask is, what did you find when you took a look at this? So, um, so we looked in particular at four areas. And as I say, this this was a global conversation. So we looked at four areas in around, and we ended up covering uh, concerns in around 60 states. So it's a global, global problem. And the first issue, so systemic racism, violations by law enforcement, but we also, and that was very important to us, if, and, and it is in the mandate that we uh, implemented. If you remember, there was like also the, the, the protest, the anti-racism protest that actually took place in the world and coincided, of course, with what around COVID and all this stuff. So we looked also at the anti-racism protest and the response to this anti-racism protest. And then we looked as well at the roots of all this. And we found that the roots of all this is legacies of the past, particularly the experience of enslavement, uh, transatlantic uh, trade, and uh, aspects of colonialism as well. So do you want me to tell you some of the concrete things that we found out? Yes, please. So, yeah, so some of the concrete findings, if you want, some of the, the things that really was really important to us. The first thing is that we thought, we, we kind of like felt that people believed because that because slavery uh, was ab abolished, there is nothing more to do. Slavery is abolished. We are all now living in equal societies and everybody is free and equal and all this stuff. But for the people of African descent, their daily experience, their daily life experience is a different experience. You are an African descendant yourself, so you fully understand what I'm saying. Is an experience of discrimination, is an experience of uh, often dehumanization, and an experience of uh, people who, when they come in contact with the system, with the official structures and systems, they are not treated well. So, this part, this analysis of basically as if we are denying that something, the lack of acknowledgement that we need to do a lot more to confront racism, and especially because um, of the abolition of slavery, but because human beings are prejudiced. And unless we really deal with this prejudice head on, we cannot confront it. So the first thing that we have to say is really dealing with this denial. Uh, we also have statistics in the report that show that uh, in many countries, poverty has an Afro-descent face. We show also how in healthcare, in education, in housing, that uh, people of African descent in many countries are less advantaged, I don't want to say disadvantaged, but they are living in a very, diff very difficult 
conditions. And from that, we move on to, or we actually we end the report there, but I want to link it here with the legacies and the denial. And so we thought the most important thing is, is really to come and to confront these legacies. And there we found that although there are important initiatives, and I don't want to underestimate the initiatives because they are important in many countries, uh, to deal with, you know, to memorize, to uh, to have memorials, to have museums like you have in Washington, the U.S. You have in Washington, you have the Alabama, uh, also uh, uh, memorials and so on. We found out that these uh, initiatives are not at the scale of the problem. So we found that there isn't a single country that really re reckoned completely and comprehensively with that legacy. And that, that is, that's a wider problem. Because although we are talking about, uh, in, uh, we talked a lot in the report about the transatlantic trade, uh, a lot of societies actually in other continents as well experienced this, uh, had the same experience. And most of these societies, as I say, we couldn't, we did not find a single country that reckoned with the past completely. So we come, we come to the report with really concrete recommendations around legacies, around memorialization, about the concept of reparatory justice and what it means to acknowledge uh, that history, to deal with it, uh, to uh, deal with the truth, uh, to have more of, um, of memorization, to deal with uh, also um, the consequence that we have today that a lot of sectors of society are disadvantaged. Now that you've done this report, what next? So uh, I mentioned that, uh, so the Human Rights Council decided to establish an independent international mechanism to deal with law enforcement and human rights. And that was decided last week. So we think very soon they will be within the United Nations. We know that very soon there will be a three-member mechanism that will deal with human rights and law enforcement, and our office will be supporting that. But in addition, we'll be working with states and communities, particularly people of African descent, to really take the, uh, the recommendations forward, particularly as the people of African descent themselves really told us what they need and what are the things that they think can break the cycle. Is there any real possibility that the people who are suffering from systemic racism because of this report will see anything concrete take place in their lives? It's important to have these studies and to have these actions that uh, your organization uh have taken has taken it's important to have that but quite often countries leaders ignore the right thing to do and do something else so is there a reality that something concrete that will be life-changing for the people who are suffering from systemic racism and all these other human rights violations around the world will actually see and benefit from I actually think so, because I think there is a lot of momentum, and I think 
from what I saw uh, two days ago in the in the Human Rights Council, there is also willingness of states to look deeply at these issues. And we are very happy to, we'll be very happy to work and assist states. There are concrete things that states need to do. For example, with regard to law enforcement, we found out that there is strong association between a law enforcement associated blackness often with criminality. There is a both conscious and unconscious bias, but there are also structures that needs to be uh, looked at. This is why a, a mechanism that, what, that uh, was just adopted or was just uh, will be creating uh, created soon can help in really putting laws and uh, regulations and looking at ways forward. The other thing that really struck us is how little assistance there is for the families. A lot of these families, their lives have been really shattered by the uh, killing and death of their loved ones. Um, and they are left alone, except for their immediate friends and the uh, you know, community. But the state is not there for them. And I think we can do a lot more to help people in that regard. Uh, with regard to systemic racism, I think there is a lot that can be done if we are look at it from a conscious point of view. What is the impact of policies on, on various communities? And I think you in the United States actually have started this work and you have started to go in that direction already some time ago. And now what we need to do is to deepen it. And we are very pleased to see that there are initiatives in that regard. Let me ask this question then. In the broader con construct of human rights, there are some members of the Human Rights Council that don't exactly have shining records when it comes to human rights and I'm not going to call any names because I don't want to put you or them in a bad spot, but we all know who they are and we all know who some of the names have been in recent years and certainly recent months uh, that have been called out for their activities. Is there any reality that any of these countries will change their behavior? Yeah, I, well, I am an optimist. Otherwise, I think it would be very difficult to do this kind of work because you do this kind of work, you see, you see the suffering of people, but you also do it because you want to help people, as you were saying. You are right. I think, you know, the world is not a perfect place and the world is, uh, is made of governments and made of uh, uh, states. That's the United Nations. That's everyone. I think what I see is that the peer pressure and the fact that they are sitting together and they are discussing these issues, first, they learn from each other. And I think hopefully they learn the good lessons rather than the bad lessons. And you feel that there is a level of accountability towards each other. So they come in, okay, they're not everything they say is always accurate, but at least they feel that they have to defend their policies. And I think what, we, what is very important in the work that we've done uh, recently, uh, this work that we are discussing today, that we found out that in actually about 60 countries uh, we, that we looked into, I guess if we look at the 190-something countries, we'll find we find equally problematic issues uh, in this regard. Uh, and we were looking only at one constituency, the people of African descent. Can you imagine if we were looking 
traumas, if we're yeah. looking at people dialects, if we are looking at other uh, uh, Latinos, yeah. and people with, you know, at other constituencies. So it's, it's a really global problem. Yeah. And I think if it, we need to reckon with it. And I think for the United Nations, because we are a member state organization, it is very important that we take these issues seriously and we work with it at the global level. We're talking with Mona Rishmawi. She's the chief of the Rule of Law, Equality and Non-Discrimination Branch in the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. She's also served as the UN independent expert on the situation of human rights in Somalia from 1996 to 2000. And uh, she served as executive director of the UN International Commission on Inquiry on Darfur from 2004 to 2005. And I want to ask you this question. And this is a sincere question. How do you believe your experience in these other capacities prepared you and your team for this problem now that it exploded when George Floyd uh, was killed in the United States? Because as you've said, um, you know, we're not talking about, you know, we don't often talk about the other groups around the world that face systemic racism, but we're talking about the situation that took place here in the U.S. and people of African descent across the world because in large part of the tremendous amount of impact and press that that situation in Minneapolis had last year. So how did your work and your experience prepare you for this particular effort? If I learned something from all these years that Kind of work, and it's, it's really connected. This work really connects us because, at the end of the day, it is about you know uh, giving voice to people, to uh, victims, and really understanding their plight and reflecting it and bringing it back to the United Nations and seeing how we can help out. So, two things that I want to say on that regard: one, the importance of solidarity. And I see this solidarity. I saw it in the Darfur context. I saw it also in, in Somalia because the people in Somalia often told me, nobody talks about Somalia. We are forgotten. But really, you go back and you come out and in the uh, human rights uh, field, you find a lot of reports about Somalia, a lot of people who are trying to help Somalia, but the people in Somalia did not realize that. So the importance of solidarity and you know putting the spotlight on the issues I think is really, really important. And the importance of solidarity amongst equality movements. I think that is always very touching. Most of the people that we talk to um, or in, in, in a lot of these contexts are actually women. A lot of them are uh, young women and their lives get very destroyed with these experiences that uh, this experiences of violence and discrimination and so on. So the movements themselves, and like you have Black Lives Movement in the the United States that inspired a, a movement across the globe that brings in race, gender, uh, disability, a lot, a lot of what we talked about were or actually cases of mental disability as well. That, uh, that, uh, that uh, was one of the triggers actually for abuses by law, law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So I think this solidarity amongst movements and this solidarity with people on the ground is extremely important. 
And this is something that we in the United Nations, are, we hope to help and we hope to amplify. And our report speaks very strongly about the importance of supporting the voices who stand up against racism and stand for equality. Mona, thank you. Very last question I'll ask you. Um, what is your view on the race problem that the U.S. is dealing with uh, and how uh, the U.S. is moving, I guess, to handle it? Not 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 from a governmental or policy point of view, but from the American people point of view. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought in the issue of the American people, or not the issue, the, the American people the, the, to the to the discussion, because I think the most important thing is to have an honest dialogue and to have an honest uh, discussion about not only me and my experience, but also my neighbor, but also the the person uh, in the in the next community, in the next town, in the next neighborhood, and really open one's mind and. Uh, of what is good for the society as a whole and for a nation and as a whole. And I think people are able to do that. And I feel that there is a level of compassion and a level of understanding that unfortunately uh, the, uh, the, it took something like so horrible, like the murder of uh, uh, George Floyd uh, to actually bring it to the homes and uh, of different uh, of people in different places but i think this national discussion about what needs to be done and how do we behave and what is the next step is really the first step forward on this and uh, for that i have a lot of confidence that you know i have family in the us i come to the us very often and I uh, have, of course, a lot of friends and our headquarters is there. So I, I feel I know the U.S. and I have a lot of confidence that it's, it's a society that is able to tackle very complex questions such as race, race relations that we are discussing today. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to add before we end the conversation? No, thank you so much. That was really nice. Thank you so much. Mona, thank you for your time. Thank you for your experience and for your service over these years. Have a good day, and thank you again for your honest and uh, absolutely uh, inspiring dialogue today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Back with some final thoughts in just a moment and a preview of our next show, which is about as close as you could get to a modern-day David versus Goliath showdown, as you could imagine. You're listening to Colors. I'm Christopher Cruz. I'm white, 62, and I live in the D.C. area. I was born and raised in Maine, at that time and today, the whitest state in the nation. But we lived near a military base and were neighbors with a black family whose parents served in the Air Force. Such physical closeness was very rare in much of the U.S. and, I dare say, still is. I grew up watching home movies of us playing on the swing set with black children. Not many white children born in the 50s and 60s have that experience. I then moved to the South and got to see segregation up close. It wasn't pretty. As a white person, I am pretty much insulated from the issues that black people have to deal with. But my wife is black, and she lets me know when I'm being especially clueless. So much of what black people have to deal with is surprising to me, sad to say. I'd guess I'm a lot like many white people in that regard. 
I guess I'm upset on a moral, intellectual, and economic basis about how black people are treated in this country. It's indefensible, morally and intellectually, and it hurts our economy. A lot has changed for the better, but I'm not optimistic in the near term. I think we're centuries away from being in a good place. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. That was a fantastic conversation to have with Mona Rishmawi. And a part of the reason why, for me, is that it means the United Nations is paying attention to something that's happening in the United States. And there are people that have traditionally believed that the United Nations has no bearing on the United States, even though the U.S. is a member state. Um, Granted, it it holds special significance because of where uh, the U.S. stands in the history of the United Nations. But there are many people that believe that the United Nations really can't do anything to force any change in the U.S., but the fact that they mention the U.S. in their report and the U.S.'s problems suggests to me that they are dealing specifically with the United States and its race problem as they look at the world and the world's racial problems. So, in other words, the U.S. is no different than any other country when it comes to dealing with the fact that we have problems. Speaking of race, one thing I wanted to share. I read this in the Washington Post this week. The number of people who identify as multiracial has changed considerably since 2010. It measured at 9 million in 2010 and was at 34 million in 2020. That's a 276% increase. Why is that? Kimball Bruce who's president of Election Data Services, which is a political consulting firm specializing in the analysis and presentation of census and political data, told the Washington Post that this could make redistricting more complex. He said, we're seeing so much more of this two or more races. And that increase, he says, is significant because it will start, quote, muddying the waters a bit when we get into the question of drawing districts and the creation of of different minority seats, and will it be African-American or a Hispanic seat? He says, those are some critical things to watch, and we agree, and we will. I'm Rick Massimo. I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm white. My name is Jessalyn. I am a multiracial woman. I live in Oakland, California. I am Susan Goodyear. I am white, and I live in upstate New York. And I'm J.J. Green. And I'm Black, and this is Colors. Coming up in our next episode of Colors. Tyrese Coleman is a Black woman. She is a writer, and she's from the tiny rural town of Brown Grove, north of Richmond. She went to visit, and when she got there, she was shocked. I noticed a lot of, you know, you know, orange cones, um, evidence that some things were were happening and so I asked my godmother who um, still lives on the road mm-hmm. what was going on and she told me oh well Wegmans is going to be in my backyard and that was no exaggeration imagine driving down a sleepy dirt road to the old home place and realizing the trees across the street from the house are going to be replaced with a massive building the facility is being Uh, compared to the size of the Pentagon. And not only that is happening. My family cemetery abuts that property. And Uh so it's unclear as to whether or not there are any additional um, 
burial sites that may end up actually on their property. So what is Brown Grove going to do? And what is Wegmans saying about all of that? That's coming up in our next episode of Colors. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts about the program and you'd like to contact us, you can do it by emailing us at colors at thecolorspodcast.com. That's colors at thecolorspodcast.com. You can subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes our very own Podcast DC. Well, it's time to go. And as always, we want to thank some people. Hillary Howard, Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley. I want to thank all of the people working on those groundbreaking diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging teams all across the country who are doing the work to make sure everybody is heard and appreciated. Thanks to all the folks conducting seminars and webinars on race and social justice issues to help get to the bottom of our issues. Thanks to all the folks who've submitted reflections on race profiles to us. Thanks to the NFL, PA, Dr. Anthony Fauci, James J.B. Brown, Mike Chikaitis. Thanks to Matt Fogel, the WTOP social team. Thanks to Melanie McKee, Romina Nadal. Thanks for the music to Jesse Gallagher, Cosmic, and Offshane. And most of all, thank you to you for listening to us. And finally, just remember keep talking to each other and just as importantly keep listening to each other this is colors a dialogue on race in america